Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here today. And, and like Taylor was saying, if this is your first time with us, we're so glad that you're here today and worshiping with us. And I hope that you'll come back and your first time visit will turn into a second time visit. We'd love to connect with you and get to know you better. But we are in this series right now called God of the Underdogs. And what we're doing is we are taking a look into the lives of certain people in the Bible that we've kind of categorized as underdogs. These are people who, you know, you look at their lives and you go, God used that guy? I mean, I mean, these are like the least likely people, but it shows us something that, that God, when he's in charge, man, it doesn't matter where you start, he can help you finish well, and he can do anything through anybody, and these are certainly the cases with the people we've been looking at um, in this series. Now, today, we're going to learn about another underdog, and when I tell you who it is, I think many of you might think to yourself, hmm, I did not think he was on the list. Because it's not the impression we get of this guy when we think of underdog. It's not a name that we associate with this individual. But the reason for why he's an underdog is because this particular person tried to come up with every excuse under the sun of why he was the wrong guy and why God should choose somebody else. He tried to convince God, hey, I'm the wrong man for the job. That's why he's an underdog. He uh, personally saw himself as the least likely person on the planet that God would ever want to use. He had this, um, God, you don't want me attitude in this conversation. I mean, he's got every kind of excuse you can think of. I'm talking about one of the most well-known individuals in the Bible. His name is Moses. You heard of him before? We, we all have heard of him before because you don't have to be a Bible scholar and you don't have to have grown up in church your whole life to know some things about Moses. He's one of those biblical figures who has crossed over into, you know, everyday life. I mean, there's, there's movies about this guy. They've made Broadway musicals about this guy. Has anybody make it over to Branson when Moses was going on the show over there? Yeah, a number of you. They've made toys and playing cards and all kinds of things out of, out of Moses' life. Um, when we think of Moses, I tell you, we, we don't think about the excuse maker. We think about the strong biblical leader. We get this impression. Now, isn't it correct? When we think of Moses, this is the image that we get of Moses. Isn't this what you think of with Moses? Man, the strong leader out there in front of the parted sea. We see he's the one that went to Pharaoh and he rescued the Israelites from Egypt and he brought them out of that land of slavery. And, and the whole story climaxes when they are pinned up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is chasing after them and God sends a mighty wind and the Red Sea parts and the Israelites go across the sea on dry land and when the Pharaoh's army comes after them, the water comes crashing down and they are saved. You know, this is the image of Moses that we think about most of the time. And if this is the only image and the only thing we know about him, then I think it would be very easy for us to just have this assumption. Now there's a guy that man, he had reached some kind of level with God that we could only dream about getting to. Or he had some kind of relationship, or he had some kind of, some way of perfecting holiness. And only because he perfected holiness was God able to do the things that he did through his life. Oh, if I could ever attain that level of holiness, do you wonder what God could do through me? 
We have a way of looking at people like Moses and we have that kind of impression on them. We sometimes think of other people in our lives and we think of the same way. We're like, boy, if I could be as spiritual as that guy, if I could have the prayer life that she has, if we could, oh man, God could use me. But I'll tell you, if you know the whole story of Moses, then you'd know that that was certainly not the case. Moses' story starts out, we learn about him when he's just a baby. Um, he is born in slavery. He, slavery. he is an Israelite, also known as the Hebrews, also would become known as the Jewish people. They were in slavery in Egypt under the hard, heavy hand of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh got it into his, uh, his mind one day that the Israelites were going to grow in numbers so large that he could not control them and they would overthrow him. And so Pharaoh throws down this terrible law. Do you remember what it was? All the Jewish boys need to be drowned in the river. Now there's a lot of you mama bears in here saying, over my dead body would my son ever go in the river. Can you imagine being a Hebrew woman who just had a baby and they said, guess what Pharaoh just said? Couldn't imagine. Moses' mom was like, uh-uh. And she kept him secret for as long as she could. And then when she couldn't keep him secret anymore, it, some of these details might have been a while. She, she made a basket and she put Moses in the basket because just hoping against all hope, she sends him down the river. It's like, God, please protect my baby. This is the only thing I can do because I'm not going to throw him in the river. Please protect him. And she sends him down the Nile in the basket. Now, the next parts of the story, um, we find out that Pharaoh's daughter of all people finds this basket. She has pity on this little baby and she brings Moses into her own household. You talk about going from slave to the highest family in the land in a day. God can do crazy things, can he? And so she raises him as his own and just through the way God orchestrated the whole thing, Moses' mother even got to be a part of Moses' upbringing. And Moses is in Pharaoh's house living a life of privilege and when he's about 40 years of age, he observes just how harshly the Egyptians are treating the Hebrews. And there's this one day he sees an Egyptian beating up on a Hebrew slave and when no one's looking, Moses, he kills he murders this Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew. And he thought, done with him. No one will ever know what I did. But little did he know at the time, he would be found out. And when Pharaoh finds out that he murdered an Egyptian, Pharaoh wanted him dead. And so Moses does the only thing he knows to do. He runs away. He runs as far away as he can to get out of the, the reach of Pharaoh. And he starts a whole new life. Has a family. He has a career. He does, and, you know, for the next 40 years, he's a shepherd living out in the wilderness. And he's caring for his father-in-law's flocks and all of those things. So now Moses is 80 years old. All right, and he's out there in the wilderness and thinking that that part of his life, the first 40 years, it is in his rearview mirror. He's probably not even thinking about it anymore. He's not thinking about Pharaoh or the Israelites or nothing. He's like, I just got to do my thing. And then this happened. You got your Bibles, you got Exodus chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today, Exodus 3 and Exodus 4. If you want to turn there, that'd be great. All the scriptures will be on the screens behind me. And if you're following along on the newlifenwa.info, um, the current teaching card, you can, it's all in there. But it says this is what happened when Moses was 80 and he's just doing his thing. Verse 1, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Yeah, I'd say so. Why the bush does not burn up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look at it, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. You know, I think if you've been in the wilderness for 40 years, you have the right to say, I've pretty much seen everything there is to see every day out here. I don't imagine there's a lot of variety in what's going on. And so when Moses kind of wanders upon this bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up, it's curious. It's like, huh, I've never seen that before. And that's hard to say. And so he walks over to this bush, and to his shock, the bush talks to him. There's a voice that comes out of this bush. It's Moses. And he goes, whoa. Well, I don't know if it was exactly whoa, but he said, here I am. Look at verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. That's God's voice. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Yeah, I had to practice that one. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Friends, this is just one of many places in the Bible that should remind us that God never takes his eyes off of you. He sees what's going on. I'm seeing that more and more in Scripture all the time. His eyes never come off of us. I'm going to assume that the majority of us know at least the, the bullet-pointed details of the rest of this story. Moses goes back to Egypt and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. That's the exact quote. No way, Jose. And so God sent a plague. And then after that plague came and ravaged everything, um, Pharaoh, Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to do it. This happened over and over. In fact, 10 plagues were coming towards Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the 10th one was the worst. Do you remember which one that was? The death of every firstborn son in the entire land. And after that 10th plague, when that one just, oh my goodness, wiped and devastated every family, Pharaoh's like, please leave. And so Moses takes the Israelites, and you know the rest of the story. The Pharaoh decides to pursue them, and they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And if you have never read that story word for word from your Bible, can I encourage you to do so? It's the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. And do that sometime. You will be amazed at what you're reading and what you've forgotten and what you didn't know. You're just like, wow, God did that. It's one of the greatest acts of deliverance you're going to read in all of Scripture that has massive impl implications even for when Jesus comes. But here's why Moses is an underdog. Here's why we're talking about him this morning. Because by the, between the time of God calling him from the burning bush and him actually going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, Moses gave God three reasons 
three excuses for why he was the wrong man for the job. Some might call these three reasons his three insecurities, but bottom line is that Moses tried to talk God out of it. He tried to give God every reason for why he was the wrong guy. And I wonder how many of us in this room today have ever felt just like Moses. Have you ever felt a tug on your heart that maybe God was impressing something there for you to do something? Maybe he put a burden on your heart so strong for a certain group of people that you said, I can make a difference there, or I can make a difference at my workplace, or, or at my school, or even in my neighborhood or in this world. But maybe, just like Moses, when push came to shove, you're kind of like, yeah, but I think maybe he's got the wrong person. I don't think I'm supposed to do that. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe some of you right now, you walked in here with that burden. And you're like, I, that's how I feel. That may, I, I'm not qualified for this. Maybe you've told God all the reasons. You've gone through your laundry list, your checklist of saying, that's, that's a good idea, God, but for somebody else, either, whatever it was, Moses is like, God, I'm going to give you three reasons for why um, I'm a bad pick for this job. And I think in Moses' insecurities, I think there's something we see in ourselves. Now, the first reason he gives God for why he's the wrong guy has to do with his credibility. Moses did not see himself as a credible person. I think some of that was wrapped up in his insecurity. It's like, you want me to go where? And you want me to say what? And you want me to say that to who? Look at verse 13. This is where he tells God that nah, this isn't going to work. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? You know, it's like, what if I go there and I can't get them all on the same page? I think Moses is doing something in some form that we sometimes do. It's like, yeah, but what if they won't work out? What, what if I go do this, God? What if I go and... Um, and they're like, why should I listen to you? Well, what if? What if I get down there and I meet with the leaders of the Israelites and they go, you know what? We know who you are. It's been a long time, but we know exactly who you are. You were that rich, spoiled kid that grew up in a life of luxury. You never had to make one brick. You never had to do one thing. You've never been whipped by, by an Egyptian slaver. You, none of those things. Why should we listen to you? Maybe Moses is thinking, what if they ask me, you know what? We heard about you. Yeah. You're that guy that ran away in fear because you murdered somebody. I think for Moses, I think in his mind, he has a credibility problem. But this is how God told him to address that issue. He says, when they ask you these questions and they say, who sent you? What God are we talking about? He said, you just tell them this. You tell them, I am sent you to you. He says, I am. And uh, Moses is like, I am, hmm, I'm not sure they'll believe that. But I think what, Mo, what God is trying to communicate to Moses when he says, you tell them that I am since you, I think what, what God is trying to communicate to Moses is that, hey, this, what's going to happen, the deliverance of the Israelites, it has everything to do with my ability, and Moses, it has nothing to do with your credibility. Because when these people come out of there, they're going to know that I did it, it's not you. So when they ask you, who sent you and what God do you come to? You say, you tell them, I am has sent you. I'm doing this. And I think about that. And I think about why Moses hesitated in this situation. And, I, and I'm wondering, have you ever 
questioned your own credibility. Have you ever thought, well, I don't have enough experience to do that. I'm not qualified to do anything like that. Why would they listen to me? Why would they believe me? I don't have the expertise like this person. If you've ever found yourself doing those kinds of things, I think you're kind of just falling in line with Moses a little bit. I remember when I was uh, 22 years old, I was doing an, a year-long internship um, under a, a minister by the name of Kent Williams. No relationship at all. We just happened to share the same last name. Kent was somebody that I'd looked up to for quite a while, and so I was pretty thrilled to get to go do an internship with him. He is one of the best communicators of God's Word I've ever, I've ever known, and I'm super thrilled that on the last weekend of June, Kent is going to be the guest speaker here that weekend. You guys get to have him here. I'm, I couldn't be more excited about that. Um, I've known him for a long time, but when I was 22 years old, I was interning with him, and towards the end of that internship, I'd already finished Bible college, but at the end of that internship, um, I started having several churches call me up and, and asking if I would be interested in becoming their preacher. And, and I'll be honest with you, I was like, I don't know if I can do that. You mean I got to preach every Sunday? What if I run out of stuff? My, my, you know, my sermon file is pretty small right now. I, you know, what if I run out in a few weeks? So I didn't know. I'd lead a church? I don't know. And I remember, um, I remember feeling, I don't know if I can do this, if I'm ready to do this. And I, I knocked on Kent's office door one day, and I walked in and sat across his, his desk from him, and I told him, I said, I've got some churches reaching out for me, wanting to know if I'll become their preacher. And I said, do, do you think I could do that? Do you think I'm ready for something like that? And, and I'll never forget what he said. It was like without hesitation. He looked across his desk at this 22-year-old kid, and without any hesitation, he said, of course I do. I don't have any doubts that you could do that. I wish that that, I wish that moment right there took away every insecurity and fear that I would ever have for the rest of my life, but it didn't. Sometimes I still feel like that 22-year-old kid staring back at him. But I can tell you that what he said was a big shot of assurance and reassurance to me. And I'll tell you, since that moment, I have been reminded of this often, and I've seen this play out so many times that in everywhere that, that I have ever been, had the privilege to serve with or through or any situation, I can honestly tell you that, I, that it is about God's ability, not our capabilities on any of it. God is doing something special among his people, and it's about what he's doing, not us. And I think that's what he's trying to tell Moses. Moses, it's not about your credibility or what you can or can't do. This is about what I'm doing and my ability, and I'll get the glory for this. You've got to trust me. But Moses doesn't quite get that message yet. If you read the rest of Exodus chapter 3 and move into Exodus chapter 4, what we read is God laying out this plan for Moses. Moses, this is how we're going to get it done. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. And here's what's going to, it's all, and he lays it out for him. And then we see Moses' second insecurity start to come up. Look at Exodus 4 verse 1. Moses answered, well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? So he's still kind of doubting God. It's like, I don't know. He says, I think I'm the wrong guy and I've got no evidence. I'm just going to show up on their doorstep and say, here I am. God's going to rescue you. Really, I think what Moses was complaining about, he goes, I have no evidence that you're with me. That's what he's saying. 
I don't have any credibility with these people, and I don't have any evidence that what I'm saying is true. And I don't think me showing up there and saying, the great I am sent me is going to make much difference. That, that's what Moses is, is saying. I don't have any proof. Nothing to show that what I say is, is actually true. Now, if you know the story, God will give Moses the proof. But it brings up an interesting point because there are a lot of times that we feel strongly led by God to do things. We might even say, I feel called to do this. But the same sense is, I don't have any proof to go along with this calling. All I've got is I just feel strongly that God wants me to do it. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, I can't show you anything. I can't rewind the recording of my conversation with God. It's, oh yeah, God did say that, didn't he? I don't have that. What, what proof do I have? And I love what Matt Keller said in his book on underdogs. He said, when we lack evidence in the natural, we can still walk confidently in the spiritual. That's called faith. Faith. Friends, if you don't know this, walking with God every day of your life is the greatest experience you'll ever have. But you can't do it without faith. And sometimes our faith is all we've got. I don't have physical proof a lot of times. But I've got faith. You know, the, the Bible says in Hebrews 11.1 1, what faith is. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, it takes faith. You won't always be able to pull out of your pocket and say, hey, this proves it right here. But you have faith in an almighty God who impressed upon calling on your heart to go and do, and you're trusting that. The Bible says that it is impossible to please God without faith. So it makes me think, you know, your walk with God every day, it requires faith. And the great things we do in his name don't happen outside of faith. But is there any other kind of reassurances that, that he could give us? Now, now, here's what he did for Moses, okay? Moses like, I don't think they're going to believe me. I don't think the great I am. I don't think that's enough. So what can I do? And so God says, well, you take, you know that staff that you got, you're holding in your hand, Moses? Throw it on the ground. And so Moses throws it on the ground. And if you know the details of the story, it turns into a snake and it freaks him out and he runs away, which is the exact same response that I would have, all right? I don't know, I've been seeing stuff on Facebook, how all the snakes are out in force and stuff, and people are like, oh, don't kill that one, that's a good one. No, it's not. <laughs> There's no such thing as a good snake. The only good snakes are a dead snake. Who's with me? All right. The majority wins. But I get the other side of it, too. And then God says, pick up that snake. So he reaches down and grabs the snake, and it turns back into a staff. And God's like, if they don't believe you, do that, and they'll believe you. And he, says, and he says, now Moses, take your hand and stick it in your cloak. So he sticks it in his cloak, and he goes, now pull it out. And he pulls it out, it's covered with leprosy, terrible skin disease back then. And I imagine Moses like, ah, I don't know. I, he says, stick it back in your cloak. And he sticks it back in, he pulls it out, and it's restored. He goes, if they don't believe you, do that. He says, if they still don't believe you, take some water, pour it out in front of them. And that water, when it hits the ground, will turn to blood. Oh, they'll believe you then. And so God gave Moses the ability to perform these signs so that they would believe that the great I am sent Moses and they would follow him. But I wondered, what about us? Do, do, do we get any proof that God is telling us to do what we think he's telling us to do? I want you to know that it's not the same for everybody for sure. 
But God has a way of giving personal confirmations that what you're doing is in step with his will. Now, I cannot even explain the millions of different ways that God does that, but he does. In his way, he'll let you know through a peace in your heart or some other more, more in-your-face kind of confirmation. Back in 2011, my wife Kirsten and I, we were, we were wrestling with a major life decision. I mean, we were absolutely at a crossroads in life. And it had nothing to do with our marriage or anything like that, but we were facing a huge decision. And I remember praying and praying and praying and praying, God, please show me what to do. I don't know what we're supposed to do. And, and there's such huge ramifications either way. And if you knew all the details, then you would know that action and inaction required the same amount of faith. Because they both led to different directions. I didn't know what to do. Um, on this particular day, I had been praying about what to do. And I had strong feelings about certain things. And I was like, God, I don't know if this is what you want. And I don't know if you, have you been there? And on that particular day, my dad called me out of the blue. He's never done this before. And he's never done it since. It's just not kind of how our family rolled. But on this particular day, I will never forget it. He calls me up and he says, Joe, I was studying my Bible this morning and I was reading through the story of Nehemiah. And, I was, and he started talking about different details. And he said, while I was studying the story of Nehemiah and what God did through him, I felt so strong today that God was telling me that I'm supposed to call you and tell you to wait for some reason. Now, I don't know what that means. But I'm calling you, and I'm telling you to wait. So have a nice day, son. Bye. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's strange. He's never done that before. You know, it's a, God, I just felt like God told me to tell you to wait. So a little bit later that day, um, I needed to send an email to a buddy of mine. And um, he, um, he's a friend, a close dear friend who knew our situation, been praying with it with us on it. And so I, he kind of wanted to know what was going on with that. So I thought I'd shoot him a quick email. So I sat down at my laptop to, to write this email and I clicked on the radio and the song that's on, and, and, and you're not, you might think I'm crazy when I tell you this, but the song that's on was a popular Lincoln Brewster song at the time. And the song just repeats itself. It goes, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord. Psh, psh. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon. It just it like goes on. And I'm sitting there. It's like, huh, that's funny. You know, and, I, and I'm like, that's, that's strange. And um, a couple hours later, um, I was putting my kids to bed. My son, Neil, who was only six years old at the time, our routine was we would, um, we would read a Bible story or two together. And at the time, we were reading through what's called the Action Bible. It's one of the greatest things you dads could ever read through with your kids. Um, it's, it's like the entire Bible as a comic book, but not just cheesy comics. I mean, like Marvel, DC, comic-level comics. I mean, it's awesome. It's like a 1,000 pages long, and it'll take you a long time to get through it, but so just a little plug for the Action Bible. I get nothing for that. But anyway, uh, the Action Bible. So I'd read through it a couple times with my kids already, and I told Neil, I said, hey, go grab the Action Bible, pick any story you want, and bring it back to your room, and I'll read it to you. And so I'm sitting on his floor, leaning up against his bed. He runs into, into my lap. He plops down, and there's hundreds of Bible stories. It's 1,000 pages long. He opens it up, and he goes, Dad, I want to read about this guy tonight. And it was Nehemiah. And I sat there, oh, Nehemiah. And I just started to chuckle, uh, sitting there. 
And, and, I'm, and within a few short hours, I felt like the Lord was sending me confirmation of what to do through my father, through Lincoln Brewster, and now my son. I feel very strongly now that I think we just need to wait for God to act and just trust Him. And I, I can stand before you today and you don't know any of the details of that, but it is the best decision we ever made with the greatest outcome we could have ever imagined that still impacts our lives today. And we're still grateful that we waited. God has a way of confirming his will to us. And I can't tell you how he'll do it for you, and that's how I think he did it for me on that particular day. But he has a way of saying, you are walking with me, and the path you're walking down is in step with my will for you, and this calling that I put on your heart, it is from me, and you need to go for it. He has a way of confirming that. But even though Moses had a much more uh, physical confirmation with the snake and the leprosy and the, and the water into blood, he still wasn't sure. And that's when we see his third insecurity or his third reason kind of rear its ugly head. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Moses says to the Lord, uh, pardon me. And I think, uh, yeah, I think by this point you need to be like, <clears throat> one more thing. Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor um, since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses, what he's doing, he's like, I've got personal flaws in my life that's going to keep me from doing what you want me to do. Because I'm not good enough. He says, my personal flaw, God, I don't speak well in front of people. And obviously you knew that before you called me, right? Some Bible scholars believe that Moses maybe had a stuttering problem. Either way, Moses is like, I can't get the words out that you want me to say, when you want me to say them, to whom you want me to say them. I don't have confidence in myself to do that. Jump down to verse 11. This is what God says. It's a great question. He says, Moses, who gave human beings their mouths? Have you ever been asked that question? Moses, who gave you your mouth? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight, makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak. And I'll teach you what to say. I think this is God just saying, Moses, you're worrying about nothing. I gave you your mouth. I'll put the words in it. Just do it. And then in verse 13, Moses says, <clears throat> pardon your servant one more time. Lord, please send someone else. Which I think is at the bottom line. That's the heart of it, right? It's like, God, I don't want to do it. Please just send somebody else. And, you know, I will never know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. I wonder how many people have never lived up to God's destiny for them because of an insecurity like Moses's. I'm not good enough. There's other people better than me. And besides, you can't use this. What could I do? God's solution, he's like, hey, you've got a brother. His name's Aaron. He's a good talker. I'll let him talk for you. And so that's what happens. God sent a solution. And I think about this, and I'm like, well, maybe you don't have a stuttering problem, but have you ever discredited yourself because of some perceived imperfection? Not good enough. Matt Keller, in his book on underdogs, he says this, and I think it will mean something to a lot of us. He says this. Satan would love for you to believe 
that because you can't speak well, because you have a disease, or because you are dyslexic, or have some other imperfection that you can't be used by God, Satan would love for you to give up on your potential and throw in the towel on your dreams because you have been through a divorce or had had an abortion in your past. Satan would love for you to believe that because you are wounded from an abusive relationship, you can't be one that God uses in the future. I think he's spot on. The enemy doesn't want you to succeed. The enemy does not want you to overcome. The enemy wants you to stay an underdog and never do anything for the rest of your life because of perceived personal imperfections or past sins that's robbing you of your future with God. I think God loves underdogs so much because when he uses you in spite of you, only one person can get the glory and that's God. Paul had something like this happen to him in the New Testament. In fact, Paul is our underdog next week. We'll get into his story a little bit. But Paul was given a, well, all we know, it's a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but it was a weakness. It hurt him, and it made life hard. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, he says, Three times I plead with God to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power rests on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You could look at it just like this. That when God uses you, in spite of our weaknesses, he gets the glory. Because when it's all said and done, there's no other answer to what happened other than God did that. Well, God loves underdogs because he gets the glory by showing what he can do through them. And that's what we see with Moses. So what do you do about these insecurities? If you've got something right now that's kind of keeping you back, what do you do? Two things, and then we're going to be done. First, remember God knows you, and he is not limited by you at all. And remember that. God knows you. And he's not limited by you at all. Because it's about God's ability, not your credibility. It's about God's ability, not your capability. It's about God's ability, not your past. It's about God's ability. It's not about anything else but you. He knows you. He's not limited by you. Second thing, remember, our imperfections, they don't keep us from our destiny. They actually can position us for it. God can use our story that might be so loaded full of problems and sins and imperfections and flaws, he can actually use those things for his glory. And those things can actually position you to do it. God gets the glory.